1: Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. This show has often taken us around the world to many places and typically we talk about the challenges that are facing us and the boundaries between uh, the human population and the wildlife populations and a lot of times where these intersect. So we've got a big one on the horizon today, Ebola. It's in the news, it's scary, it's straight out of our nightmares and horror flicks, or we think it's so far away it won't affect us. Today, my guest is Dr. Kathy Alexander through Virginia Tech, and she's working in a group of, with a public she's working with a group of public health professionals at the Virginia Tech Bioinformatics Institute. So we're going to hear straight from the source, close to the outbreak, what's going on? Welcome, Kathy. Hi,
2: Elliot. Nice to be here.
1: It's so good to have you back again. We've talked about so many wide varieties of how disease works between uh, the human and the non-human neighbors, from the antibiotic work and behavioral work that you've done, and you've been so wonderful being a guest on our show previous times. So this is a really timely timely opportunity to have you here on Our Wild World. So I understand that you and a team at Virginia Tech, the Bioinformatics Institute, are working on this current Ebola outbreak. I'm sorry, I'm rolling over my tongue a little. Can you tell us a little about what
2: you're doing? Well, the group I work with is funded under a NIH uh, program that's designed to engage preparedness using the latest modeling tools to try to ask important questions about how many people be affected how many things do we need what are the logistic needs as time goes on and and we see the epidemic progress as it does and and that could be with influenza or dengue or now with Ebola Um, my role is actually to provide support and input as a zoonotic disease specialist and many pathogens have um, circulation in wildlife or domestic animals, and then they make the jump to people, they, what we call spillover. They move from an animal host to a human host, and we call that spillover. And that's exactly how Ebola operates. It's considered a zoonotic disease.
1: So we're finding this more and more recently from uh, Dr. Barbara Horowitz Nat- Natterson, I think her name is, and her book Zubiquity, which is turning uh, the medical profi- uh, profession Back to working again with the veterinarian process, uh, profession in understanding that we do have a lot of crossovers between wildlife and human diseases, although we may call them different things, but Ebola is different. It feels like a silent killer, a scary killer. So why is it coming out? Where, let's, let's back up a minute. Where does Ebola come from? What do we know about it? And what is happening in West Africa and then let's get into why is it happening again now.
2: So let's start with what it is. Well, that's very interesting, all these questions. I mean, Ebola is a virus that even now, we're really not completely sure where the reservoir host is or what the reservoir host is. The data to date suggests that there are bat uh, hosts that maintain the virus in forested areas in Central and West Africa. You said bats? Bats. Okay. And um, the data, because uh, we find antibodies in bats and clinical challenges with bats, they don't die. They, They don't even get sick. So, as with many viral pathogens that have emerged, bats appear to be involved in this one. Now, in Central Africa, Ebola outbreaks have occurred since 1972, but they've predominantly occurred in rural areas. Places where people and villages are rather remote from urban centers and where control, infection control, um, barrier control, and I'll explain what those mean, and general um, public health interventions have stopped the outbreak um, before too many people have become involved. West Africa is very different. Okay, let's now, back up
1: one one second because you just said something very interesting. You said it's been happening in rural, remote areas, and yet you say in the same sentence that it's been able to be contained. Right. So that's that doesn't seem, at first glance, to be logical that you would think it would spread, because it is so rural and perhaps they don't have access to the cl- the clinics and the diagnostics. So has that changed from well, I, from I the think past?
2: No, I don't think that's it. I think the the big issue is one Ebola in Central Africa is something recognized. It, it's a it's a terrible disease. It presents with hemorrhage and and various other uh, signs which we won't go into. But uh, it's it's detectable. You can see it, and and it's and it's quite striking. And the uh, public health response has is immediate. People get on the ground, and because there's not that many infected people relative to what's happening now that uh, there is the potential of getting it contained before it hits mass densities, before it hits lots of folks.
1: So in this sense, being in a rural and a remote area works for science in in the medical community.
2: Right, because there just uh, isn't as many people to manage with such an infectious disease. And they're they're not traveling that far. What's that?
1: And they don't have mechanized travel. They're not traveling to larger urbanized areas where it could well, spread?
2: Well, I I don't know that I'd say that. I think that it's just been that that we've been lucky and they haven't. Okay. Um, but there's more to it than that in the West African environment, I think. Okay, um, so there is yeah, fill in, us in on that. You started
1: to tell us what's going on in West Africa that's different.
2: Well, in, in Central Africa we have uh, similar issues of poverty and, and conflict and the like, but West Africa is uh, very different in the fact that they've had particular challenges that have been going on for decades. For example, a history of civil unrest. Any time you have prolonged civil unrest, and and we've had these problems across three countries of Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea, that there has been war and uh, movement across borders and and conflict that has spread across borders. And whenever you have this for prolonged periods, you have a a general undermining of infrastructure and public service ability and obviously poverty. So that has been a major social destabilizing process is the decades of war that have occurred there and people trying to recover from that and the poverty that accompanies this. And so in addition to that, you have um, very little public health support. So before this began some of the the, the actual, um, uh, you know, um, attributes of the region are incredibly overwhelming. So, for example, there's less than .01 doctors for 1,000 folks in some of these locations. And you can imagine there's, there's very few doctors. The hospital infrastructure is not very uh, strong. And you now have all of these uh, people that are getting sick, and you just don't have the resources to deal with it. Um, and the, the other more, so the, that's a general framework. You have a civil unrest, you have low literacy rates, you have an urban population increase that in some of these regions has been over uh, 250% over time, and densities that have increased similar amounts. Um, you have reduced sanitation, reduced physicians, um, and the like, and against that backdrop then, you have a high level of extraction of natural resources and also uh, in regards to bushmeat. So this outbreak started in a little village as well, close uh, unfortunately to, though, a road network that connected that village to high density urban environments. And that's never really been the case before. That's the difference, is that not only is there a, a general framework of vulnerability in that region, but there's also now this very close outbreak and road systems that allowed people to move very quickly into an urban center before we even knew that things were happening, before we even realized that it was Ebola. Initially they thought it was Lhasa virus which is another virus of the same group and because there is no history of Ebola infections in that part of Africa and frankly many people thought that Ebola wasn't going to be a problem and I think we all collectively underestimated the potential impact of Ebola
1: this is really frightening in, in some ways. So um, rather than use the word globalization, let's call it connectivity. As we go through these landscapes that have been unrest, and civil unrest or war, and somewhat left alone other than through political teams, we have a tendency to forget about the, the non-combatants and what they're doing. So um, I guess I have a question here. How is this outbreak different. You answered it somewhat because there's roads now, but how is this outbreak different than previous outbreaks? Do we know where it, do we, do you and your team know where it started? Does it have anything to do with the bushmeat trade or cattle? Does it go from wildlife species to domestic species to people or is it strictly coming out of the bush and into human habitation?
2: Well that's a, a, a series of questions which are all um, very pertinent and I'll try to um, start with first just telling you what we know about Ebola in general that it isn't a wildlife reservoir that we think it's bats and we think the process is that bats are either um, harvested directly and eaten um, and the process and Ebola can be transmitted and is only transmitted really through bodily fluids or or um, and so when they're processing the animal they can be contaminated by the fluids from the animal or by ingesting it if it's not cooked. Cooking meat appears to be sufficient to kill the virus but there's the processing and eating and the like so we also realize though or believe that other animals and we've seen this and in fact it's been a great conservation challenge and perhaps bringing some species to the brink of extinction like gorillas. It infects gorillas and it causes catastrophic mortalities In the central Africa, there was an outbreak that occurred in the early, uh, you know, last decade that killed nearly 5,000 gorillas, they estimate, 90% of the known population there, because they are very sensitive. And we think what's happening is that um, as as we get to a drier period, animals congregate around uh, fruit trees, and that fruit... Is eaten by bats and then the saliva on the fruit drops to the ground and then other animals like dikers and chimpanzees and gorillas will eat that and then become infected and then they are either found dead and eaten by hunters or killed as they're sick and eaten by hunters. And that is supposed to be, the, that is really primary way that we've seen it spill over from wildlife into a human population. Now in this instance, the, the first case that we know of was a two-year-old child and it's not clear how a two-year-old child would have access to meat and there's uh, bushmeat and there's clearly uh, some confusion about exactly how this started. What we we do know is that there's been massive changes in that ecological environment and that some of the putative bat species which are putative reservoir species are able, one, they cover the range from Central Africa all the way to West Africa and they're able to occur in agricultural areas or even in city gardens. So there is the possibility, completely speculative, that there was some fruit that dropped to the ground or defecation or environmental contamination that the child was exposed to and that's where the outbreak then started and then this is that village close to urban centers so we know that it occurs in wildlife and it jumps to humans and usually this is associated with um, access to bushmeat. Now there's been some very good work by a number of scientists looking at the genetic uh, samples and taking a molecular epidemiological um, assessment of that, and what they found is that the virus is similar to what was in the Congo, but it's different, and it looks like it's had about 10 years. um, The the level of of change over time indicates that it probably originated from a strain that was in Central Africa in 2004.
1: So you say this is a different strain than the one that came out. So... Nobody, how how do we, we know, how how not- worried do we need to be, how do, how do we know or how do you guys find out whether this is, a, a host of species are a reservoir, and if it is you know bo- transmitted through bodily fluids, how do we go about preparing ourselves? So let's um, we've got about three minutes to the break. So let's start with the f- the first question. Um, how how can it be different? Is it is it through a process of mutation? Is it completely different? And what does that do to you in terms of the scientists working on this? How do you deal with coming up with a solution?
2: Well, I I think first of all, it's important to say that um, it looks, it is the same strain of Ebola virus um, that was in Central um, Africa, but that it looks as though given the genetic changes that have happened over time that it's um, related to the related to the virus that was in Central Africa it is unrelated to the current outbreak in Central Africa so as you know there was another outbreak of Ebola uh, that started earlier and uh, now I believe has affected about 62 people that virus is different than what's in West Africa so that's not something coming back to, to to Central Africa so being clear It's the same strain of virus, but there are some genetic changes that help us identify that the virus has actually split about 10 years ago, and then it, it is moved. Now, was it always in West Africa, or has it moved into West Africa with its reservoir? We're not certain. But certainly, the bat host, the putative bat host, there are three of them, their ranges include both regions. So what happened? I don't think at this stage we can say anything more than that, that it's the same Ebola, Zaire Ebola strain, but it looks like it broke off from the the Central African one about 10 years ago.
1: This is fascinating. So right now we're going to cut away for a short break and then we're going to come back and learn a little bit more about Ebola and what Kathy and her team at Virginia Tech and the Virginia Tech Bioinformatics. Uh, team is doing so stick with us this is ellie weiss and my guest dr kathy alexander out of virginia tech and you're listening to our wild world we'll be right back and welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my special guest, Dr. Kathy Alexander. Uh, she's a wildlife veterinarian and she's PhD at Virginia Tech. And she's working with the Virginia Tech Bioinformatics Group on this latest uh, Ebola outbreak. So before the break, she had mentioned a whole lot of information that we're going to break down a little bit for our listeners, so that we can hopefully contain some of the fear, get a better understanding of what we need to know about Ebola, and um, get get an understanding of what it what it's. Uh, whoop! My monitor. Sorry, <laughs> my monitor keeps going. Sorry. Uh, there's my notes. Okay, sorry about that, everybody. So before the break, we, Kathy had mentioned some astonishing facts that um, I consider myself pretty up in the loop on things, but you had mentioned that uh, 5,000 gorillas uh, suffered from this particular or the last Ebola outbreak. How can something of that magnitude escape our attention?
2: Well, I, I think the issue was that um, people didn't quite, maybe they didn't quite understand um, what had happened. I don't know, but it's definitely true that um, in, this was in the Republic of Congo in 2002 and 2003, in the Lossy Sanctuary. Five, they estimate that over 5,000 animals died and it, at the mortality rate in the gorilla population was between 90 and 95%. So in this instance, um, and I think it might be a unique one, we see a pathogen which is so devastating to mankind and so incredibly tragic when when, when there is an outbreak but it also affects wildlife um, in a similar manner um, with Ebola uh, mortality rates being so high in gorillas and in fact many conservationists have, have called for major action to try to prevent what might be ultimately the extinction of gorillas in these areas where Ebola occurs given the other pressures which are on those populations from poaching and deforestation and the like. This is astonishing to me
1: because I do a lot of work and I talk to a lot of people with the Great Apes Foundation and what's going on with Great Apes and the conservation message and the threats, but not recently can I honestly say that I've heard Ebola is a threat that conservationists are working on. Um, You don't see that in the news headlines in the uh, whether it be the mainstream newspapers or even social networking or the newsletters from these organizations. Why are we not hearing about this? Is it a fear base or is it because they don't know it?
2: I don't know. I think there's always an issue of people communicating and, and, and being knowledgeable about things in their sector. I mean, um, I, I, think that, I think what it just points to is that there are so many issues of importance and so many challenges across the globe. That it's hard to keep your finger on all of them, and that can be um, a very difficult barrier to overcome. And part of the issue in West Africa, I, my my hat is off to the amazing doctors and uh, nurses and citizens and statesmen. Doctors Without Borders risking their lives on the fly, trying to manage an outbreak that we've never seen before. Um, and and it's it, it's just that there are all these very brave people trying to do things and we are now I think with all of this coming together aware how important it is to invest in training and infrastructure and health as our budgets dwindle and are redirected I think we need to think about these issues you know in some locations they were selling pairs of gloves in Liberia for a dollar you know because there was just no there were no gloves there were no protective clothing Um, healthcare workers were being exposed to the virus and had no way of of protecting themselves. Many, many incredible people, so many incredible people, lost their lives already in the healthcare sector trying to protect people. Um, And so, I guess you know, there's these conservation issues that are that just highlight how broadly a pathogen can influence society um, across special interests. But when you have a catastrophic outbreak like we have now in West Africa. Um, I think it's a call for everyone to contribute the best they can either to um, raising awareness of the need of, of people in those regions and of the medical staff or contributing from a scientific perspective or sharing. And I think, I think in many respects um, there is a focus of, of Americans being concerned about their own safety. One, I think that's a very, a very small risk um, because the reasons that make people vulnerable transmission in West Africa are not the types of uh, circumstances that we experience here. Um, You know, we have hospital infrastructure. If someone's sick, there is the facilities to take care of them. The problem in West Africa is that the number of people affected very rapidly overcame the public health support that was available. And then people were, you know, were required to look after their own sick people and, and the medical staff also without protection. And so the virus itself, and that's where the urgent issues arise, the virus itself is, is transmitted through touching or so contact with an infected person, touching or caring for a sick person, or funeral processes where you're exposed to fluids of the person. And in the, and now there's just not even enough people to bury people there.
1: That, um, and that, it's sad. It's... Kind of pathetic and it's frightening. And you brought up a really good point in that we need to understand that conservation is not just about loving animals or animal welfare and animal rights and that conservationists are doing more than out there setting camera traps to provide census counts of what animals conservation is very very big it's very complex and let's take it from a capital c to a small c so that our listeners and our audience understands how broad as you just mentioned kathy the field of conservation is. That it's it, it crosses species. Um, it's not only understanding the species we have, the species we're losing, but also that bridge, which is what your work and you work with Caracol Biodiversity Center in Botswana and also through Virginia Tech. So our guests have learned a lot of the work you do on the ground in Botswana, but it's so much more. That what you're doing with your medical team and your background is understanding that there are bridges, tiny little and some very dangerous bridges between people and wildlife. And thank you so much for mentioning um, our heroes out there that have lost their lives, who are facing this
2: outbreak head on. Well, and I have to say that um, whatever tiny bit I contribute will be nothing compared to so, to what the people are doing on the ground, and if I could find a way to get there, I would but
1: bring a lot of gloves with you well, so I, I, I mean that's that's a thing our listeners can do if this is something that uh you're frightened of or learn more um if it's something you want to help. Uh, figure out in terms of wildlife conservation it crosses over its health of not only wildlife environment and species but its health of people who live with wildlife and are doing the best to coexist so when these kinds of um viruses, incredible deadly viruses, jump species, then all of a sudden it becomes really important when it starts killing us. But somehow, it sort of stayed in the closet when it killed 5,000 gorillas to the general public, not to the people who were working on that and finding it. So it's, whether it's a small contribution, Kathy, or not, you know, history will tell. The point is, is that we have people from all over, you and your team, that are working together, cross boundaries, international boundaries, putting agendas, political species-specific agendas aside, to find a way to deal with this outbreak. So how dangerous right now is this outbreak?
2: I think we don't really, I don't think we know. I, I don't think it's ending anytime soon. And that's the fear. Okay. Uh, already, it's it's uh, infected five thousand, nearly five thousand people. Um, probably nearly half of those have died. We don't have. There's no. Uh, there's no. In Liberia, the outbreak is completely out of control. Um, unless there is a concerted multinational effort to intervene, this it could be a disaster, unprecedented. And um, I think one of the things, just to mention, we all can do something. Though I know that that the Red Cross takes donations for just simple supplies. I mean this is a pathogen that, that doesn't, it's not aerosolized, you're not going to get it from somebody sitting on the plane. It's, it's because people don't have protective clothing, gloves and goggles and things like that to protect them from being exposed to um, fluids and, 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 and dealing properly with infected people. There's just not enough space uh, to take care of everybody who's sick and people are being turned away Um, it's terrifying if you can imagine living there and having a family member sick and the stigma, everybody stigmatizes those who are sick or who have recovered and people who help the teams of people who help Barry are stigmatized by their communities because everyone's terrified I mean everyone's terrified around the world and I think the question is what can you do and and I, I think that you have to you have to be impressed with that there's something you can do even if it's just that you're going to donate something to red cross or you're going to contribute some time like you are to raising our awareness of the needs of people I don't even think we could imagine what it would feel like to have suffered so many decades of of, um, unrest and deprivation and then be hit by a pathogen which is so devastating and so terrifying people see their loved ones picked up and taken away and they never see them again and so even the hospital becomes a scary place you know, you're gonna die if you go to the hospital. Um, so the, the, the doctors and health professionals working on the ground are battling with so much, people trying to, uh, trying to help people understand that, that they're helping, that the, there's been a lot of confusion about what the virus is and a lot of false cures, people saying, um, you know, different things that if you did this, you won't get Ebola and, and because of fear. So going back to the issue of, of what you can do, I think everyone can do something. And like you said, everything's valuable. What this has shown us as well beyond the need to be aware and available for um, helping in these humanitarian crises in whatever way it may be, is the need uh, for cross-sectoral work to be done, for veterinarians to work with doctors, uh, for politicians to to work with uh, government officers, and for us all to come together to to stop grandstanding or uh, being worried about things that don't matter and trying to think about what can we do actively, if nothing more than care, um, to stop this because the devastation, Ellie, LA will last longer than the outbreak uh, will. If this, the, the, the effects of this outbreak in West Africa will be felt generations because of the, its, its impact on families, infrastructure. Imagine that all the hospitals now are, are focused on Ebola. What about all the other viruses and parasites, malaria, what about just having general problems, high blood pressure, uh, pregnancy? All of those people with all those other medical conditions are being ignored uh, largely because of the fight to deal with Ebola patients. So Ebola is not just the case counts that you heard me rattle off. It's about its an entire influence on social resiliency there and this social disturbance and, and the history of social disturbance. So it's a it's a very sad and... Uh, and very, very urgent uh, issue where we cannot underestimate what will happen. Again, I don't think the big fear is what will happen to us in America. I think the big fear is that we need to do something so that it stops in Africa.
1: So we can stop it in its tracks where it is. So as Kathy had said, there are a lot of things we can do over here in our um, sea to shining sea continent that is very far away from West Africa through supporting the organizations you already support. Kathy mentioned Red Cross. There's Doctors, Doctors Cross. with Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontier. There's certainly on-the-ground organizations that you can provide donations or supplies or connect with to find out what you can do because in a globalized world, things move much more quickly than they used to and as Kathy is explaining has been explaining this This Ebola outbreak is mind-boggling, it's astonishing, it's astounding, and we are just at the tip of the iceberg of it where we do have a lot of possibilities to turn things around if we have the economics, the funding, the personnel, the will, societal will of us here in the U.S. or Europe who are safe to lend a helping hand, financial, service, uh, volunteer, money, uh, goods to make a difference. Kathy just spent this last section here talking about all the needs that the uh, people on the ground are are facing that they are shorthanded of and the possibilities of how frightening this could be if we don't find a way to control it. So you had mentioned a little little while ago, we've got a couple of minutes here, Um, until the break. Let me see if we even have time to get into this because I'm sure, um, you know, I'll tell you what, let's just go ahead and cut to a break right now because um, i'm sure you're going to have a lot to say about the next question in terms of you'd mentioned cures and i know we've been reading in the paper that uh, there's been um, some injections that have been available and some people have been getting it and how experimental it is so stick with us this is ellie weiss my special guest dr kathy alexander out of virginia tech and we're talking about ebola so we'll be right back And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with Dr. Kathy Alexander, and we're talking about Ebola. It's on the news. It's in every headline you see, and uh, it's scary. It promotes fear, and we're trying to help dispel some of that fear, but still have our audience and our listeners understand that this is a serious outbreak. We are on the, the precipice of a paradigm shift, a quantum leap in understanding more about this virus. Uh, Kathy had already explained that it has mutated. Um, it's not the same one. So understanding it, what mutation and genetics and evolution have to do in short periods of time, it gives us all of this information. So we briefly touched on where the virus seems to originate, So, which is bats. And how bat droppings and other animals pick it up. So does bushmeat, uncontrolled commercial bushmeat, play a role here, do you think?
2: Well i I would let me back up just a little bit because I I know you said something that I think might interest and alarm people that the virus is mutated. Now every virus every virus is mutating at some level. Um, so that's not um, it's not a it's the frequency of those mutations and the type of mutation and whether or not that changes actually the behavior of the virus. So we have no evidence that any behavior has changed.
1: Okay, uh, that the, that's the good. That's, that, that dispels some right. worrisome yeah. fears. And there's
2: a lot of concern about that because we have that's always popularized. In the you know in these movies about disease where the virus has changed and all of a sudden it can do different things right now, and so- I don't we don't have any any evidence that there's been any what we call a phenotypic change that the virus has actually changed the way it behaves or looks and and does business but but every virus is changing HIV virus changes and in fact it's those changes that help us track where it's come from if it didn't change we couldn't use these kinds of molecular techniques to determine where it came from so we use these markers to say it look like this and over here, but it, it looks like this over here and the connections help us understand these pathways that the virus might have moved through either locations, hosts, or different people. It's a very, very powerful tool. The question has arisen, are any of these changes that are occurring in this virus of significance in terms of its ability to be transmitted? And we just don't have any information to say one way or the other but that's uh, what the teams are working on so not our team but others there's a couple of really good uh, groups that have been publishing recently and have done some amazing genetic work and they're looking at those questions and as more samples become available as people have more data i think there'll be better insight into um, in, more, more dominantly the question is can we use that to understand how the virus is moving around um, and and how does that influence our control but then also, has there been any fundamental changes in the virus that have any implications to how it uh, is behaving in this outbreak? And to that question, we just don't know. But we are getting better understanding from these genetic analyses uh, done by these, it's been really great work uh, to tell you, and looking at that it looks like there was only one spillover event. Um, And what we mean by spillover event, again, is how many times or or how often did bushmeat or spillover from some contact with a wildlife reservoir translate in an Ebola infection in a person, and the genetic data to date suggests that there was just one jump from a wildlife host into a human host, and that since then, all of the cases that we've seen to date, um, we don't have samples from all of them, but we infer from the samples that we do have, that they have been human-to-human transmission. And that's very important because obviously what you would do to control continued uh, spillover from a wildlife host or continued transmission and dominant transmission between humans is very different. So those are powerful techniques that allow us to ask important questions. But hopefully we will be in a position later on to start asking questions about uh, what is the the impact or the influence of some of these changes because there has been quite a few uh, changes in the virus, uh, what we would um, call non-synonymous uh, mutations, or and th- that all that's saying is that there is some change, and that it, it's been uh, a bit more than we've seen in other outbreaks. And the longer this outbreak occurs, the more opportunity for change to occur.
1: That's so- sort that's sort of a double-edged sword. I mean, having an Ebola outbreak like this happen gives us more. Background, us, you, the scientists, everyone who's working on this in every form imaginable from working with the bats to working in the hospitals to working where you are at Virginia Tech all this information gives us um, clues, tracking clues to understand more about the virus itself. So I, I, I hope our listeners understand that even though it may seem like um, we're not there yet, that we haven't found a cure, which we're going to get into in a minute. But that all the work since this outbreak began, um, it has been going on, even though we're not hearing it in the headlines or on the news. And what seems to hit the news is the sensationalism, the fear factor, the terror of it. So what this program and what I'm hoping, Kathy, helps our listeners understand is, yes, we do need to be afraid of the things that are coming out of the wild that can bite us that are so small, that are not typical of what we would think. Trans species, you know, making jumps, diseases, but the work that is gained from understanding this. So you had sent a comment comment just a minute ago later on. Hopefully that later on continues as of now to learn more and later on in future, what, years, decades down the line, that we get a better understanding so you had mentioned, or I think you had mentioned, and we talked about, there's in the headlines now this, uh, this injection, this cure, that it, it's experimental, but it's being used. Can, do you, can you give us any information about that?
2: Well, um, there's some promising um, options, but they're going to be limited, I think, in their ability to curb this in, in absence of um, the pro- dominant need, which is just people medical supplies and protective clothing and, and the like. That's the dominant need. There is uh, a, a, what's called ZMAP, which has been successful in treating people, but we just don't, we don't have enough of it for it to make a huge difference. And, and it's be, it's, They've tried to use the limited amount there is to target uh, healthcare workers. Um, they were treat, using it and treating healthcare workers from America that had been sick. And, and it was very successful. There is a vaccine that had only gone through animal trials um, and still there would be production issues. I mean, there's there are so many people. How would you um, actually manage to create so much vaccine in such a short time, even if you were prepared to use it in people? Vaccine use is always something um, that becomes, that, that requires a whole bunch of human trials and, and, and safety issues. And of course, there's always the emergent problems that argue against delaying release of something that could really help people. And I'm not really sure where we're gonna go on that. I know that there's escalated Effort in trying to realize the positive benefits of vaccine. And then the question arises who would get vaccinated and the like. Um, and that's what my the group I work with, um, and it's part of a National Institutes of Health project, looking at how do we use modeling tools to ask the right questions so that when we do something we have an idea of what might happen because of it. So uh, the group I work with are some of the best modelers, I think. Uh, around and are trying to take all this information and put it into the pot and look at making um, forecasts of what would happen. Now the data from West Africa is very, very poor. Um, In any kind of a situation where you have uh, a low resource area, poverty, poor infrastructure, you're not going to get very good data because it takes people and infrastructure to get high quality data. So already you have a problem because you really don't know what's happening because you're not getting good data. Everybody's trying but it's incredibly difficult in this type of environment to get the right kind of information and there's other the other element that you don't know what's happening there's a lot of cases that appear not to be reported or people that die that are buried and never reported so there's a lot there's a lot of, uh, of cases of Ebola that are are unknown and, and our estimates of case counts are likely underestimates so the, the, the strength of modeling is that you can say well let's just say there's this many people that are sick and they're infecting this many people over this course of time, what would happen to the epidemic? And right now, um, we, that's the kind of tool we're using. If it happened like that, and how well is our model tracking what's happening, then we tweak the model and we can say, no, this model is pretty good. This, there are obviously uh, guesses that are put into it, but we can say with some level of, of confidence that given what we know about the past outbreak and other outbreaks, the projection looks like this. Well if this happens like this, what do we need? So there's this immediate emergency application that models provide. What do we need to stop it? Well we need so many beds, we need so many gloves, we we need so many of this intervention and that intervention. How many healthcare workers do we need? How many people to bury do we need? So if we don't bury people, how many people will get infected? So where should we deploy our our essential resources? So as a logistic tool, it's an amazingly effective approach and our team now has managed to create a synthetic population for Sierra Leone meaning that we can actually in the computer create what we sort of a a hypothetical population um, and their distribution across the landscape and what would happen if we don't do this or what will happen if we do this and and those kinds of um, evaluations are critical in trying to plan your intervention approach what is the best thing to do and when and if you don't do it what will happen not every model is wrong because it's not the real world but it does help us start asking questions now that are urgently needed with everything we know what should we do and then longer term models come in to ask you ask questions about why did it happen where are the dominant areas that we really need to plug control into how do we prevent this from happening in the future and so at this stage modeling is a critical element guiding action uh, on the ground in the outbreak region, this is just astonishing.
1: We have about five minutes to the to the break, and then we're we're gonna come back and ask a few more questions. So um, I'm hoping our audience understands that uh, the headlines are frightening, but there is a tremendous amount of work being done by a tremendous amount of people all over the world uh, trying working hard to figure out as Kathy had talked about models, trying to understand where this disease can go, where it came from. So that brings just to mind quickly, a quick little question. It seems as we make inroads in in conservation in all ways, uh, sanitation, human development, providing access to more and more tools, healthcare, um, that at the same time, Could we possibly be fracturing some landscapes that kept in in these rural areas, that kept these diseases contained, for lack of a better word, to um, their wildlife hosts? Are our actions in terms of making more inroads and doing conservation and doing what we think is bringing forward some of these rural um, traumatized areas that have been under civil war that don't have access, do you think some of that has an effect in bringing out viruses that weren't there or that well, were there but didn't show up or jump species into hum- humans?
2: Well, I think what we've seen over time that, that you know everybody, humans, animals, uh, the in- environment, when it's degraded and, and disrupted, that um, health issues arise for animals, for, for domestic animals, wildlife, for people. And, and so that trying to minimize um, ecological disturbance is a, is a huge issue. And yes, there is, I think, compelling evidence to say that um, to some degree, um, environmental change and increased incursion into forested areas and extraction of timber and roads, increased contact and use of wildlife in the manner that it's being done, which is unsustainable, can contribute to the emergence of pathogens like Ebola. Is it in Ebola? Is that the story, the whole story? No. Because... Uh, the way in which Ebola uh, erupts is is surprising um, we never have uh, predicted it when would it happen where will it happen simply eating bush meat is not enough there's other elements to the, the the story that drive it and and that's what we need to find out but the underlying story is that you know it's that butterfly effect whatever you do goes across the landscape and uh, we're all linked to animals environments and humans and, and we're not separate although we wish, wish we could um, I think, Uh, One of the things to note though is that the West African outbreak is a humanitarian crisis that I personally in terms of the health sector have not seen before and I think most people would say in our generation we've never experienced something like this. And this is a need for everyone to realize how important this is. For everyone to come to the table and try, nations and agencies and scientists and the public to how can we synergize assistance to the region because It will not end unless something incredibly dramatic happens. Some incredible level of global support is leveraged so that the people on the ground are assisted and there's more supplies and uh, infrastructure because as it stands now, I'm not sure unless something major happens, we're going to see the closure of this epidemic anytime soon.
1: So, Kathy, this is astonishing information. What you just really made clear is that it is... um, a multi-layered, multi-faceted um, issue that it is not contained to just the people who are being infected by Ebola over there in West Africa. It has a lot to do with us and um, how we can get involved. It's it's about so much more and that you had said it just a second ago, it is a web of life and what we're learning as we make more inroads through corporatization and um, large-scale agricultural farming or palm oil plantations, the more we disrupt these ecological environments that we did not disrupt before, but in the need for increased human populations in the West where we use a lot of these resources and the resources that they need there on the ground, that we are opening up Pandora's boxes in ways that we didn't previously think we would do or didn't have the knowledge to understand right so right. Um, we've it looks like we're t- in time for a break so um, we're gonna come back we have a little bit more to talk about and we're gonna sort of connect this and wrap this up to some of the work that Caracol has done in the in the past and how that connects to what Kathy and her team and all the teams who are working on Ebola are doing now. So stick with us. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest, Kathy Alexander, and you're listening to Our Wild World, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to our wild world, which is pretty wild right now, in some sort of scary and unnerving ways. But what uh, my guest Kathy Alexander is here today helping us to understand is that we all play a part in this. This is not happening far away. The and this I'm talking about is the current Ebola outbreak. Kathy has given us some tremendous information of how we can get involved. So I'm going to step back and have Kathy help us understand a little bit more of why she and her team at Virginia Tech and the uh, bioinformatics group are critical over here in Virginia to what is happening in places like West Africa or even Botswana, where Kathy's uh, project and group that she and her husband work on, Caracal Biodiversity Center, have done studies previously that lead up to understanding how to create these models and how to understand how viruses uh jump from species to species you had done some mongoose studies with antibiotics and more recently um with through the national institute of health i believe uh, a malarial and water outbreak give us a little background on that
2: well it was it was um, nsf and diarrheal disease but and National if, Science I, Foundation. Um,
1: I'm sorry. Thank you. No,
2: no, no, not at all. I would just uh, wouldn't want. I not work on malaria, so everybody'd be surprised. <laughs> so, um, no, I wanted to say first and foremost that um, that it's just been a privilege to be able to contribute at whatever level we are. Um, the the most important need in West Africa right now is uh, stopping and containment, and um, there are so many parts of the puzzle that have to come together. And modeling has um, a a mechanism of contributing to that so that we can assist people who are on the ground um, to identify the logistic support they need and have an understanding of what's going to happen, as well as mobilizing international uh, support that needs to come to the table to make uh, those interventions realized. Uh, And if we don't do that, um, we have some big problems. But in terms of my my previous work, I think um, one of the things that struck me about this and and why I feel so grateful and humbled to be able to contribute is that we are an you know we are linked to our environment and we're seeing that with diarrheal disease in Botswana where changes in water quality and changes in landscape um... relate uh, identify an outbreak of diarrhea in in people even though they have ostensibly uh, purified water resources Um, everywhere around the world Uh, We're coming under greater challenges, financial, environmental, and social, political. How do we manage all of these interfaces and balance all these needs when there are so many across the landscape? And And so many of
1: us. Let's not forget, we, we, we have a tendency to keep the exploding human population, no matter where it is, developed, undeveloped, emerging, poor, wealthy countries. We're not including zero population growth in our our models, are we?
2: Well, I mean, you mean in terms of our, our philosophical approach, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that there's um, there's a need for that, but um, the problems that we're seeing now are so much larger. It's kind of, you know, once the horse is out the gate kind of thing. Right. But But we, we do know that there are increasingly strong and useful tools that can be applied, and there's... Uh, a whole group of folks like yourself and like the people I work with at VBI and and at Virginia Tech that are very committed to service and trying to assist and I think that's the message really you know know, what can you do instead of everybody being terrified about what's this going to do to me what can we do to help people who we can't even imagine what it must be like to live like that and I've felt so grateful for the chance to contribute to Botswana because I feel that we live in a privileged environment that many people never even could imagine. So what can you do at your, at your, in, your in your village, in your business, in your interactions with other people um, to make the world a better place? And I know it sounds a bit trite, but there is such a huge need for us all to contribute. And I think that the tragedy in West Africa that's unfolding highlights the need for us to be thinking globally and thinking about the needs of mankind across the world because we're not isolated. The things that are happening in West Africa may not be translated to infections being a risk for us here in America but the destabilization the impact to people in the environment and the poverty and the disaster that will be left behind after we control Ebola that will affect us all we are no longer separate and we can no longer afford to feel that we just have to make sure we're safe here because that's just not the way the world works anymore
1: I was speaking with um, a gent from Kenya the other day and he put it really well in a short little sentence that here in the U.S., we have the whole continent. We have spread out from sea to sea, and we have a tendency to get a closed-minded mental image and concept that we're great, we're alone, and the rest of the world is out there and may not really affect us. But Kathy, you just highlighted how interconnected now in these generations and the generations moving forward through our technology and through um, the work that we're doing in other countries emerging or the corporatization as we look for more land to disrupt, to grow, and care for an ever-increasing human population, that we are connected. And we're connected a lot more closely than we previously thought. So and I thank you for making that very clear that now is not the time to hunker down um, and say there's nothing I can do. Uh, Now is the time to start looking at resources of how you can help. Can you tell us any of the resources that our listeners could uh, look into and where they could uh, do some good?
2: Well, I think the the, the two obvious ones are the ones uh, that you mentioned and I mentioned, the Red Cross and Doctors Without Borders. I think Doctors Without Borders have been an amazing entity in, in, in West Africa. Without, without that organization, I'm not sure where we'd be right now. And, and they, they could utilize that support as could the Red Cross as they mobilize resources. And it's simple stuff, you know, I mean, gloves. Uh, the, the, you know, I mean, even if you had 10 bucks, it would make a difference. And I think that's, that's the thing, I guess, what, you know, what personally, and I sit and I wonder, what would I feel like if I had a member of my family sick with Ebola, I mean, we can't even imagine that and and not sitting in, uh, in waiting in a hospital room uh, or, or, or uh, waiting area to figure out what's happening but you're in a one room building that you share with 10 people and somebody's sick and you have a dirt floor and you have no money and no options and there's nowhere to take this person. I can't even imagine with all the privilege that we have it's probably impossible for us to understand what that must be like. The, the, the social the the, the, the the mental health implications of what have ha- what has happened to people are huge um, this, it, it, you can't imagine i mean losing some people have lost their entire family and and then themselves are stigmatized and nobody wants them back in their village. Can you imagine what that must do to the whole population um, the affected people being stigmatized and having terrible tragedy, and the unaffected being so afraid of that tragedy entering their lives so Going back to it, and if we think about trying to live through that, I think we can do nothing more than try to hunt for ways to help. And the simple thing is to send something, no matter how little it is, so that the resources can be there. There is there's just an unending need of financial support. The other thing that's happening, of course, everybody's afraid of the region, and so borders are closing up, and important supplies are going to have difficulty getting to the region. So I think we all need to come together. Um, I, I think we need to have a different viewpoint of, oh, my gosh, I'm so afraid, is Ebola going to get me, to how can I help? And we really need to um, appreciate and commend those people who are risking their lives every minute to be there helping people uh, in the region.
1: Well, thank you for that, because it's, it's critically important on all sides of the issues that our wild world covers. We can each do something whether it's not using a plastic bag, uh, think of the dent that that makes, to giving five or 10 or what you can afford to some of these organizations that are on that front line. This is still part of that thin green line. This is still about conservation. It certainly is about what's happening in our wild world and how close that wild world is getting to us, that there's a very thin, if any, line Between us and our non human neighbors, especially when it comes to a virus as deadly and as frightening, as uh, disruptive, and will be disruptive for generations to come, as Kathy has said, as Ebola. So, we really need to think globally. We need to think outside of ourselves and how we can do something. So, I hope our listeners do take a moment to make a donation, to get together with your neighbors and say, This is something we can do. Let's come up with a creative idea and donate supplies goods money so they can be best directed on the ground you're always welcome to contact wild eyes foundation or dr kathy alexander or her organization caracal biodiversity center for more information of what you can do to help Uh, you can find us on twitter and facebook and uh, on the web at wildeyes.org and learn what you can do so Take a little time, instead of just playing with your iPhone and looking at YouTube videos, to take five minutes and see what you can do. So, Kathy, we've got a few minutes left here. Um, I have one question, and then I'd like to uh, sort of wrap wrap up with what we've learned. So, one question that I'm sure our listeners might be asking. Are you handling the Ebola virus directly? I know you have... Uh, biohazard level lab in Botswana so I know it's not there but at Virginia Tech are you dealing directly with the virus and how does that make you feel if you are and what is it that you are doing with the virus?
2: No we, we're not. The, the, um, the virus is so incredibly dangerous that it's only a few uh, locations in the United States that actually can work with it um, so we're, we're not doing that here our work is focused on modeling uh, the application of modeling tools to ask these important questions about how will the outbreak progress, um, what are the projections, what are the logistic needs and trying to assist with emergency intervention So that has a lot to do with the work you've done
1: previously in term which we've covered throughout the program today of what we have learned from previous outbreaks um, in other disease areas, but what did we learn so we've got uh, I think a few minutes left here. I'm looking at my time clock. We've got about three minutes left. What what would you like us to take away today and sort of bring us back from what we learned from the last outbreak, which you covered some this morning, to what will help us model in this current outbreak?
2: Well, if I understand you, I think what, what you're asking is really sort of, what, what now? What's, yeah. Um, what do we... are we going to do now? Well, as I said before, the most urgent matter is containment and helping people contain the the outbreak. But then there's the future needs of of how are we going to deal with Ebola in the future. A lot of that will be shaped by the lessons learned from this. One of them is that we need to have, I think, better collaboration uh, with local communities because um, many of these outbreaks have been associated with death in wildlife, and that can be a signal that Ebola is circulating. We don't know enough about that. To say with certainty and certainly there's been outbreaks that have been not that we've been unaware of any mortalities but we need to have um, early warning frameworks developed and we need to develop capacity to manage public health outbreaks maybe a little less of virus hunting a little bit more about uh, rapid detection and response and developing the capacity of public public health systems in places where they are have been eroded um, and that you know at the end of the day I think we we will, be we looking forward, what can we do to prevent this? And working immediately, what can we do to stop this? That being the most urgent question. And I think that uh, we've seen some effort on the United States to send troops over and, and to help. Um, I think as other parties come to the table, and there are many parties already climbing in, Bill Gates Foundation giving as much money as they have as well, but if we can mobilize and enhance this effort, um, I'm hopeful that we will reverse this um, outbreak. But I still think that uh, it it will continue for some months to come.
1: Well, thank you, Kathy. This has been um, an eye-opening episode, and I thank you for being available on such short notice and to be able to cover something that is really happening right now, which is uh, a lot of the goal of this program is to keep you posted of what's going on out there. But this is a biggie, people. So we've gone through this last hour um, highlighting what we can do here in the U.S., um, what donor dollars, uh, the difference your contribution, large or small, can make, as long as you do, you being my listeners, do your due, due diligence, ask the right questions, of which we've uh, covered a lot of information here to give you that idea. And um, once again, thank you for being here. Uh, I know you're a busy woman, you've got to get back. So, once again, thank you, Kathy, for being my guest.
2: Thank you, Ellie. It's been a pleasure.
1: And uh, we'll talk to you again soon, and I wish you all the very best of luck. Thanks so much, Ellie. Thank you. And this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World.